Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. On the show this week, data problems force a delay in the EU bank stress tests. When the returns started coming in, the EBA took a look at the returns and discovered some countries and some banks were using much more generous scenarios than others. In other words, they were assuming defaults on mortgages would be lower when faced with exactly the same scenario as other countries. So those countries have been politely warned to go back and do it again. The timetable is hotting up for the sale of Northern Rock and Lloyd's branches. Both banks are sort of gearing up to launch their information memorandums. And this is basically the prospectus of the business that they're selling, which is going to go out to potential bidders, basically anyone who requests it. This will really kickstart the whole auction process, um, which we expect to run through the summer and really for for the remainder of the year. And as an EU law is being drawn up to impose the new Basel III requirements, we look at how European banks are preparing to accommodate the new rules. There is also a growing movement within the Commission to have this law be not just a minimum capital standard, which is what everyone was expecting, but a maximum, which would, in fact, throw an enormous spanner in the works in the UK, where there's always been plans to gold plate and have extra capital requirements. Joining me in the studio is Charlene Goff and Brooke Masters. Let's start the show with the stress test issue. This is the European stress tests, which the European Banking Authority is conducting of more than 90 banks in Europe. And Brooke, last week you were writing about a kind of level of problems being discovered between different national regulators. It's the national regulators that are having to administer these tests and... There are quite a lot of inconsistencies seemingly coming back. Basically what happened last week is the European Banking Authority said, we've sent everyone to do a second round of data because they basically found two separate problems. They found errors in the returns that people's you know columns don't match up with their spreadsheets. And so when they put everything into the scenarios where they're testing everybody's capital, it just doesn't work. This showed up last year with the Basel impact studies as well. It's really hard to get banks that all account slightly differently to all, and national regulators that all account slightly differently to all fit into the same boxes. So this is a basic you know data problem. The second thing that happened, which is more serious, is that when the returns started coming in, the EBA, and which is borrowing a bunch of fairly expert people from various national regulators, took a look at the returns and discovered some countries and some banks were using much more generous scenarios than others. In other words, they were assuming defaults on mortgages would be lower when faced with exactly the same scenario as other countries. So those countries have been politely warned to go back and do it again. Because the the European authority defines at a kind of headline level, it doesn't say what the default level should be. It just says what the macroeconomic scenario is that everyone should take note of and then allows or or tells the national regulators and their banks to kind of follow that through. And because it's so complicated, the banks actually do their own risk assessments. You know, what the EBA says, you know, assume a housing price fall of 40 percent. What happens next? And so then the national regulator in, say, Portugal 
will then tell its banks, this is what you should assume in terms of defaults. And then the banks themselves look at their own portfolio of loans and say, assuming that broader default level, how are our mortgage is going to behave. So whether this is cheating, whether it's just different viewpoints, I suppose, who are the the kind of ones who've been wrapped over the knuckles? Do we know? We do not know. We do know, though, however, that last year, analysts were very critical of the results of the German and Italian tests that they were last year seen as having used rosier scenarios. The Italians, by many accounts, have gotten a lot tougher this year. Probably partly as a result of Andrea Enria being the new chairman, ex-Bank of Italy being the new chairman of the EBA. Exactly. Um, He knows how they cheat and won't let them do it. Um, (laughs) Whether the Germans have have learned a lesson, we do not know because we haven't seen the results. Well, very interesting news on that front. Jochen Sanyo, who's the head of Bafin, Germany's banking regulator, came out today with a, a fairly blistering attack on the EBA. Pretty extraordinary, really. I mean, he talked about the EBA having no defensible legal right or legitimacy to run the exercise in the way it's doing them, and also that it had fairly questionable corporate governance. I mean, it's a it's a pretty unprecedented attack, really, for a national regulator to take on, on, on the new pan-European one. And how serious this is remains to be seen, I suppose, but it, it could undermine the EBA. It could, although, you know, in fact, it suggests perhaps the Germans were the ones who were taking rosy scenarios. The EBA has been very clear that this time it was going to have peer review and not allow so much freedom. And so presumably there are some national regulators who are really chafing at that. And given who's complaining, we could probably guess. In theory, the EBA does have a legal formal mechanism for imposing its will on national regulators. There has to be a vote. I think it's qualified majority in most cases. So it's a problem with Germany because they're so big. But there is a mechanism, unlike with the EBA's predecessor organization, which was consensual, there is a mechanism for dealing with this kind of disagreement. Well, I'm sure that those mechanisms are all going to be used over the next few weeks until announcement of the results, which we expect now in the first or second week of July. But yes, in the meantime, I'm sure we'll be following all the political ins and outs, even though slightly unusually, maybe unexpectedly, that the market seems to be very cool about the whole process. I mean, everyone I speak to on the analyst side within the bank's thinks this is a bit of a non-event. Let's move on now to our second topic, that's Northern Rock and Lloyds, and the fact that here in, in the UK, as part of the biggest shake-up, really, of the high street banking sector in a good while, we are due to have, in the the next few days, more details of the sale of Northern Rock, which is currently owned by the UK government, and of 600 branches that Lloyds is being forced to sell by an EU, EU state aid ruling. Charlene, what exactly are we expecting and when? Well, I think both banks are sort of gearing up to launch their sort of information memorandums. And this is basically the prospectus of the business that they're selling, which is going to go out to potential bidders, basically anyone who requests it. And these documents should basically give us a much clearer idea of the kind of profitability of the business. It's it's probably more interesting for Lloyd's because we haven't had any of those details just of the branches that it's selling before. I mean, for Northern Rock, we've got a clear idea that the bank is still loss-making. We know the sort of size of their deposit base and so on. For Lloyds, we've had less information so far, so this should give the buyers um, a much clearer insight into the profitability of the business, which is obviously going to be a very key issue, and other sort of fundamentals, so customer numbers, customer balances, average sort of deposits per branch, exactly where the branches are in the country. So quite important details, and this will really kickstart the whole auction process um, which we expect to run through the summer and really for the for the remainder of the year. Now, you saw Antonio Torresorio, the new chief executive of Lloyd's, last week, didn't you? He was fairly tight-lipped about that sale process for the branches, I think. But what's 
message did you take away from him? Well, it's quite interesting. I mean, he sticks very firmly by his sort of initial response to the Independent Commission on Banking. Now, this was the big report we saw out in the spring that surprisingly said it wanted to see Lloyd sell more than the 600 branches it's been ordered to sell by Brussels. Antonio was very frustrated by that. He didn't think there was any evidence to back it up. And he sticks by that now, even though he has had constant sort of dialogue with the commission and has been shown their evidence of, you know, how they came to that conclusion. And so, Lloyd's basically not convinced by that evidence. No, they're no. not convinced by their, that evidence. They think they should only have to sell the 600 and they are pushing ahead with the sale of the 600. They're not entertaining that at all at, at this stage. I think we had comments um, at the AGM from the chairman saying they wouldn't sell even one more branch than, than the 600. What was also interesting out of the the chat I had with Antonio is that it seems that the bank also couldn't restructure the package. You know, there have been some suggestion that it could maybe stick to that number of, of branches, but change it up a bit, perhaps sell more current accounts or, or bigger branches. Uh, or, or, or bigger branches. The bank says that, you know, the, the branches were very clearly defined, actually, and it doesn't seem that it's going to alter that in any way. So I guess by pressing ahead, it may be hoping that by the time the final report comes from the Independent Commission on Banking in September, it may have gone so far down the route of actually doing the transaction that it gets away with it. He's a sort of master of diplomacy, but he sticks very firmly to this idea that he wants a buyer in place at the end of this year. And when I suggested to him that surely given the fact that the ICB would be publishing its final recommendations in September, it would be sensible to have the deal sort of as far along the process as possible. And he sort of smiled and didn't really say much more on that. I think everyone expects him to have a buyer sewn up as quickly as possible. We've seen Virgin Money, MBNK, these kinds of potential bidders come out and say they're happy with the 600 and they want to do it as fast as possible. Yeah, and they don't want more than 600. They don't want more than 600. You know, they don't want to pay for more. Both have got to raise considerable amounts of capital. So I think given that this process could sort of kick off later this month, we could have bids, sort of initial bids in maybe July. You know, I think we could see it move pretty fast. Very good. Thanks, Charlene. We should move on to our final topic for today and back really to the regulatory landscape. But um, from from a different point of view, this is how the Basel III rules, those are the international new rules that are due to be phased in over the coming years and how they're being transposed into European law. Brooke, you've been following this pretty closely. And and last week, it seems to have been getting into something of a row here in terms of the European interpretation, maybe watering down the international rules. Well, there's two separate things going on, which is very interesting. Um, There is a 500-page draft out for consultation with stakeholders, which means we don't have a copy. But we have been sent key paragraphs. Um, On a couple of sort of points that are of great interest to particular parts of the sector in Europe, there appears to be some watering down, most specifically on hybrid capital which is supposed to phase out, they're basically allowing banks to slip in and issue a little bit more before it gets phased out. So the European interpretation is, is, to, is to allow is banks to allow to, more. a little more at the very end, yeah. which mostly helps. There are a couple of French banks that issued a bunch sort of after the ordinary deadline. There's also appears to be some language that allows banks that have large insurance subsidiaries, Lloyd's, for example, and most of the big French banks, again, to use the capital of those insurance subsidiaries towards their overall capital requirements above and beyond what the Basel agreement limited. And yeah, that's, because that was one of the key things in Basel, that virtually all of that double usage of capital would 
would be stripped out. That's particularly controversial because it, it runs the risk of breaking the international deal where the Europeans agreed to give up their use of insurance capital and the Americans agreed to give up their or limit their use of mortgage servicing rights. And, the, and there are a couple of other things that were all limited as one giant package deal brokered by actually a, a country that has none of it. So if the if the Europeans start to cheat, there's a good chance the Americans might start to cheat and it could all fall apart. At the same time, there is also a growing movement within the commission to have this law be not just a minimum capital standard, which is what everyone was expecting, but a maximum, which would, in fact, throw an enormous spanner in the works in the UK, where there's always been plans to gold plate and have extra capital requirements. Although we don't know to what extent the UK would follow the kind of lead of Switzerland and the Nordics to some degree right. in going further than, than the Basel proposals. But it feels like... It, feel, uh, it feels like the Commission, the commission is saying... No, the Commission would like everyone to be uniform. Yeah. And, the, and the UK does not want to be part of that. Interestingly, industry, who you would expect would be in favour of maximum, is, not, is much more split than you would expect because mm. their view is that the UK regulator is more market-friendly than the EU in general. And they'd rather have the UK regulator have some freedom to change things and tinker with them to fit individual circumstances than be guaranteed a maximum. It's right. an interesting trade-off. Yeah. So where where, and when are we likely to find out more about it? The actual draft, once it's been tinkered with, is due out probably in July. And so we'll at least see what's in there. The actual process, we have to go into trialogue. Remember, this is the EU here where you have the commission, the council, and the parliament. None of this is going to get resolved before the end of the year. Well, it's a moving theme that we'll keep watching. But July sounds like it's going to be a, a busy month for European rules and the European Banking Authority's stress tests and potentially this CRD4 ruling from uh, from Brussels on their interpretation of Basel III. That's it for this week, sadly. My thanks to Charlene and to Brooke. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.